Good morning. We are starting a new sermon series. So if you will, go to the book of Exodus, flip all the way to the left side of your Bibles, Genesis, Exodus. If you need a Bible, you can raise a hand. Someone will walk a Bible up to you. If not, if you have your Bible or if you have your phone, turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be in the first two chapters in this wonderful book. Uh, This past week, I was talking to a family member, and we were just processing, he was processing particularly, and I was processing just various decisions that had to be made in, in our lives as it relates to things like masks and vaccines and schools and all these sorts of decisions when we were just talking and, and processing all of this. And I was listening and he was listening to me. And he said something that was just very profound that in many ways I think just sort of captured, captures just the mood of the moment. At one point in our conversation, he just, he just said, it's just really hard to know who to trust these days. Isn't that right? right? It's just really hard to know which experts to listen to and which experts not to listen to. Which voices to listen to, which voices to silence. It's hard to know which news commentators are telling the truth and which ones are not telling the truth. It's confusing. And what happens is in the midst of all of this confusion is that what we have in our culture is a sort of erosion of confidence. Confidence in those who are making decisions on our behalf. My guess is if you look at any part of our society, any part of our culture, as you look at it firsthand sort of fraying or, or sort of falling apart, you begin to lack confidence in people especially those who are making decisions on our behalf. I mean, you don't need to read current poll numbers in order to come to that conclusion, right? We're sort of currently on a starvation diet of trust. But in many ways, this isn't new. I mean, whenever there's hardship, whenever there's trials, whenever there's suffering, what happens as humans is simply this we have a tendency to begin to lack confidence in those who are over us. It's just sort of a natural, inevitable thing that happens for humans. And the interesting thing is, it can happen as it relates to our relationship with God. And in some ways, that's what the book of Exodus is all about. Uh, this fall, we're going we're gonna to look at the second book in your Bibles, the book of Exodus. Uh, in the first book of, uh, in your Bibles, the book of Genesis, we have this long story, this long narrative, and it ends with God rescuing his people by bringing them down to Egypt. And they're left in Egypt. And, and you also have these just wonderful promises that God gives to God's people in the book of Genesis, pretty much foremost, the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, where God says, I am going to bless you, Abraham and I'm going to multiply you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to give you a land where we can dwell together in relationship, a sort of new Eden where God and man can be at rest and we can worship each other. Right? That's the Abrahamic promise. And then year after year, we have God's people in Egypt with the echoes of that promise in the past, and God's people are beginning to wonder 
Has God abandoned us? Has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten his word to us that he would bless us and make us a people and give us a land? And that's what we come to in the opening pages of the book of Exodus. God's people feeling the sort of existential question that comes upon any person dealing with suffering and hardship. And it's, where are you, God? What what are you doing, God? Are you with me, God? Have you abandoned me, God? Will you fulfill your promises that you long spoke of? All of us look at our worlds, our experiences, and it does not look sometimes like God is with us. And so we begin to ask, where are you, God? This morning, one of my hopes for us all is that if you are experiencing those questions right now, those questions of where are you, God? Or if you've ever experienced those questions, my hope is that you will find confidence that even in the midst of your experiences, even as you look around and it feels like God has abandoned you, my hope is that you'll come to the simple conclusion that regardless of your experience, God does not forsake his people. He does not abandon them. He will fulfill his promises to us. That really is the big idea um, that's behind us. And it's this, that though it may not look like it, God does not abandon his promises or his people. That's the big idea here this morning. And, and in these two chapters, it really is broken down into three scenes. And that's we're gonna, how we're going to look at it this morning. Three scenes in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. And in these three scenes, we have three portraits. So the first portrait is the portrait of prosperity that we're going to look at. Then we're going to look at the portrait of courage. And then the last portrait, we're going to look at the portrait of a rescuer. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. Starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set ten taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithon and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard services in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. We'll stop there. So if you go back up to verse 1, 
we have a flashback, right, about 400 years earlier in the story, right? It's, it's sort of a bridge, a connection between the story of Exodus and 400 years later, which is the story of the Exodus. And we have the, the 12 tribes, God's people, all assembling in Egypt there in the first few verses of Exodus. And about 400 years have passed. And year after year after year after year, we have God's people and they're growing, aren't they? Do you, see, do you see that? Verse 6, they are multiplying. They are fruitful. They are increasing greatly. They are becoming exceedingly strong. Verse 7. And all that language, it harkens back to Genesis 1, doesn't it? Remember what God comes to Adam and Eve and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. And so here we have God's people doing that original creation mandate, they are filling the land. God is assembling and building and increasing and multiplying and building a people for himself, even as they're in Egypt. Well, God's people, even in Egypt, they're blessed with this sort of Edenic blessing and mandate. They're increasing. But something happens in verse 8, doesn't it? We have sort of a plot turn. There's a new king in the land of Egypt. And he takes over and it says that he does not know Joseph. Now, probably he knew the story of Joseph, right? He probably knew how Joseph was wise and he helped um, Egypt um, shrewdly you know, store up food so they kind of fended off starvation. He probably knows the stories, but what he meant is he no longer, this king favored Israel. God's people for generations had had the favor of the king, but no longer. And so this king hatches a plan, doesn't he, right? And if you're ever wondering the motivation of this king, well, it's, it's really clear what the motivation of this king is, right? Verse 10 tells us the motivation of the king of Egypt. He says, we need to deal shrewdly with them because they're growing so fast. And our fear is that if an enemy attacks us, they join that enemy and we'd be in a load of trouble. So from the king of Pharaoh's perspective, you know, the Israelites are not just a political threat, they're a national threat. And something's got to be done. And so, what does he do? Pharaoh enslaves them. He forces them into labor camps. Verse 11. They have to build these big cities for Pharaoh. Verse 14 describes their uh, plight with words like bitter, hard, Ruthless. They are oppressed. They are enslaved. And really, the culprit in all of this, who is it who is oppressing God's people in Egypt? Well, it's Pharaoh, isn't it, right? If you go back to verse 10, it says, Pharaoh even says, like, come on, we, we, we got to act shrewdly with them. Pharaoh is the one who is opposing God's people. But it's interesting, that, that whole phrase, we need to act shrewdly, that comes up earlier in your, in your Bibles. There is another character in your Bibles who is described as he who is exceedingly shrewd, who is exceedingly cunning. The serpent in the garden who deceived Adam and Eve into not believing God and his word. And so here we have, though Pharaoh is an actual historic man, he is in a long line of serpent-like kings who oppress God's people 
and oppress and seek to oppress and deceive God's people into distrusting God's word. And in many ways, that's still Satan's mode of operation, isn't it? God's people, as today, are always in the crosshair of Satan. His, his purposes have not changed, though, though perhaps from season to season and generation to generation, his tactics could change. But Satan is the original shrewd one. He is the clever. He is the true magician of mayhem. And his great objective is, as it has always been, to deceive and to make us distrust God and his promises. Right? Remember Satan? You heard it said, oh, did God really say that, right? That is the purposes and objective of Satan himself. To, to create an existential crisis in our lives such that we distrust God and his character and his purposes for us. And one of the easiest ways that that can happen, though it's not the only way, but one of the easiest ways is to inflict pain. And that is what's happening here, right? This Pharaoh is inflicting pain and suffering and hopefully as a means for God's people to say, God, you've abandoned us. I don't trust you anymore. But as painful as these first 14 verses are, right? as tragic as it is, right? this is not a portrait of pain. Okay? I, I first actually entitled this a portrait of pain, but really I don't think our author wants us to view these exclusively as a portrait of pain. Actually, theologically speaking, this is a portrait of prosperity. Did you see that constant echo in these first 14 verses? They're in Egypt, they're away from the promised land, and yet they're multiplying. They're being oppressed. Pharaoh's oppressing him, verse 12. But the more they're oppressed, the more they multiply. The more they spread abroad, and the more the Egyptians are terrified about God's people. Even as their cries soar up to heaven, even as they are truly uh, kind of explaining to God and not kind of doling their pain, but saying, this is suffering, this is hardship. They're, they're talking about it in a true way. And that even in the midst of that, the author Moses reframes this to say, yeah, even in their pain, God is prospering God's people. Even as exiles, God's prospering them. And that's true for us today as well. Even in our hardships, even in our trials, even in our suffering, they don't cancel each other up. Pain does not cancel out prosperity. Pain often can be the very thing God uses in order to prosper his people, which is what he does here in our text. And so though it looks like, from one perspective, like God has abandoned his people there in Egypt, there are these sort of literary winks to say, no, 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 no. God is building and building an army he, he's gathering a people for himself. He is multiplying himself. He is fulfilling his promises, the promise, promises he gave long ago to his people, foremost Abraham. Now, if you're struggling with that, if it, not to minimize that, but, but if you're struggling in the midst of your maybe suffering or pain or you don't understand what's going on and you're saying, God, you just don't seem good in this season, well, you're in good company because in many ways that's what the church is for. The church is for so that we as brothers and sisters can come together and rehearse the old story that even in the midst of pain and suffering and hardship, God still brings prosperity. He still brings blessing to his people even in hard seasons. So that's the first portrait that we're going to look at. 
It's the portrait of not just pain. It's the portrait that in the context of pain, God brings prosperity. But then second, let's look at the portrait of courage. We'll start in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. You're supposed to laugh. Verse 20, so God dwelt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse for the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the, so the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. We'll stop there. So in this section, we sort of have two scenes, two stories broken up. And we have two scenes of two courageous women. And they're sort of plots to foil the serpent-like Pharaoh. So starting in verse 15, that, that, that first story of these two women, Pharaoh sort of changes his tactics, doesn't he, right? No longer is he just going to oppress God's people. Now he turns to infanticide. He's going to kill babies, particularly baby boys. And so he gathers these two uh, midwives together and, and probably what's going on here, these are not the only two midwives in Egypt. These two women probably are like the, the head of a midwife guild or something. Okay? And so he brings them together and says, um, you're, you're going to need to kill boys when they're born. But, but, but really probably what's going on here is he's saying, well, a, a lot of times... Children die in giving birth, especially, think about this, you know, thousands of years ago. And so he said, what I want you to do, midwives, is you just won't make it an accident. You sit on the birth stool and just go, oh, yep, it just happened. And so what do these women do? 
they act quite shrewdly back at Pharaoh, right? They, they, they basically say, no, we're not going to do this. They, the text says they feared God, and they, Pharaoh kind of calls them back, and they're like, what's going on? Why didn't you do that? And they're like, well, you know, we, you know it, it just, it was, the highway was really congested, and it was busy, and we tried to get to the Hebrew women, but they're just, they just, they're just popping them out really fast. Like, it's not our fault. They're not like Egyptian women. Sort of worked. And then in response, evidently midwives, one of the things that you had to be, I guess, to be a midwife is not to have families. And what does God do? Well, he blesses these midwives with families. Did you see that? Verse 20. And then we get this repeated chorus, once again, that God multiplied his people. Well, if first you don't succeed, try, try again. So Pharaoh, what does he do? He says, well, okay, now I'm just going to make it a national thing. Um, anyone who finds a Hebrew child, just throw them in the Nile. Which leads us into chapter two, the second story of some courageous women. We've got the mother of Moses and then the sister of Moses. So this edict in chapter two is still in effect. And so Moses' mother, you know, meets a nice Levite guy. They marry, they have a baby. The mother hides the baby, but after a few months, she can't hide him any longer. And so what does she do? She takes this baby and puts him in a basket. But the word there in the Hebrew for basket is not just basket. It only comes up two times in the Old Testament. It's the word ark. And so what this woman does is she puts her little baby in a little ark and she puts it in the river. While Pharaoh is like building his his cities on the backs of God's people, one woman builds a tiny ark like Noah. And there's... There's some foreshadowing here, right? Because like Noah, this ark would be, would be the very thing, the very person that God would raise up in order to save the righteous and judge the wicked. Well, this child sort of does what children do when they're in a basket on the river, they cry. And so you've got, you know, Pharaoh's daughter who's down there bathing. She sees the baby, realizes that it's a Hebrew child and she takes it up. And just at the perfect time, it's just like, perfect, right? This is just like that, that, that motherly wisdom, right? Like the, the mom's like, okay, sister, my, to her daughter, like go by the river banks, just stand watch. I think something's good is going to happen. And just then the sister of Moses is in the right place to say, oh, do, do you need someone to, 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 to feed the baby? And you know, Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah. And so she gets Pharaoh, Moses's mother. How wonderfully ironic, right? And then eventually the, the, he's adopted into the royal house of Pharaoh. Moses' mom even gets paid for all of this. Now, these are wonderful stories, but in many ways, these are pictures or portraits of courage. These are pictures of women standing up against darkness. Women standing toe-to-toe with the serpent-like king. And it's an old story, guys. This is one of the oldest stories, actually one of the oldest themes in your Bible, and it's woman versus serpent. Starts in the garden, ends, go to Revelation. Revelation 12, woman against dragon. You could do a whole biblical theology of woman against serpent. 
In the garden, you have Adam and Eve who, 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 who are faced with the serpent and fall. And after, as a result of that, there's curses that God brings on the man, the woman, and the serpent. And what we see when the curse falls on the serpent, God says this. He says, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And from that point on, we have this, this major theme developing, which is woman versus the serpent or the serpent-like tactics in order to kill the messianic line. And so you have women like Tamar, women like Esther, like Ruth, like Bathsheba, and like Pua and Shipra, a long line of women who are all standing toe-to-toe with the serpent-like kings of this world and saying, I will do what I need to do in order to protect God's people and protect God's coming Messiah. We can never diminish women's role in the mission of God, especially in the Old Testament. And so our our, our text, as as Pharaoh kind of embodies this serpent-like king, he even wears a serpent. I mean, you've watched Discovery Channel, right? His even headdress has a cobra on it. He is the serpent-like king king and he is shrewdly trying to manipulate these Hebrew midwives and what do these Hebrew midwives do? They take the tools of the serpent and turn it on the serpent himself. Okay, I am convinced that we are not to look down on these midwives. We are not to look down and say, man, they kind of manipulated. No, no, no. They were doing what they had to do in order to protect God's people. They knew the old story. They knew the old story, which was, we must stand up against the serpent. And then this sort of all culminates, right, in the ultimate woman who fights the ultimate serpent, right? And that's Mary. Mary, who, who who's never knew a man and yet becomes pregnant, finally with the Messiah. And another serpent-like king raises to prominence, Herod, who's going to kill baby boys once again. And what does Mary do? She does what all of her ancestors and all the women before her told her to do. She protects the messianic line. And ironically, she goes down to Egypt to do it. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Because Mary not only protects the Davidic line, she protects the son of David. And it just would happen that in so doing, this Jesus would then turn the serpent's tactics on the serpent himself, right? Satan thinks that he's got and he's trapped Jesus in the crucifixion. Little does he know the crucifixion is the very means in which he is going to destroy ultimately the serpent, right? That's why Martin Luther calls it, it's God's ultimate mousetrap. Satan thinks he's won. And it's that very thing that he thinks he's won that is the very thing that becomes his demise. Jesus is the ultimate, the ultimate son who rises because he was protected by a woman. Now, courage is difficult. And I'm guessing these women were terrified. And women in all of, of these stories stand up and do courageous things. But, but look at why they do it. Twice it says they did this because they feared God more than they feared a man. 
that really is the antidote to our fear. We all have fears. We, we fear being rejected. We fear being abandoned. We fear people hurting us or wounding us. We have all of these fears. We have what the Bible calls a fear of man. And yet the antidote to the fear of man is what these women experience. It is to fear God foremost. And that's what they do. If you want to read one of the best books that sort of develops this theme of the fear of man and how to confront the, uh, it with the fear of God, Ed Welch has a great book called When People Are Big and God is Small. We usually sell it in the bookstall. You guys should all read that. It is a wonderful, just biblical exposition on the fear of man, how it affects all of us, and how we can learn from people like these midwives of how we can fear God more than we can fear man. Well, that's the second portrait, and that's the portrait of the courageous. And lastly, let's look at one more portrait, and that is the portrait of a rescuer. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out on the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherd and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left that man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have become a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because their slavery and cried out for help. Their cries for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So this last portrait, we've got a kind of a fast forward of 40 years. Israel's still in slavery and bondage. And now Moses is sort of royal. He's walking around his kingdom as a royal prince. And he sees injustice. He sees an Egyptian being unjust and cruel and oppressing oppressing, uh, an Israelite. And so he eventually just stirred to action. He looks around, doesn't think anyone's seeing him. He strikes, kills the Egyptian and buries the body. And then what happens? Well, you know, like, like most things, it eventually comes out, right? Rumor starts coming, gossip, and he finds out, and he, he finally works its way up to all the way to Pharaoh, and he finds out that Pharaoh wants to murder him, and so he flees to Midian as a result of all this. And the scene again quickly cuts, in verse 15, to a well, and we've got a sort of shepherd's fight. I don't even know what that looks like, okay? But shepherds were fighting over some resources, and we've got seven daughters of a priest in Midian, 
And Moses fights for them, fends them off. Eventually, Moses makes his way to to this man's house. He stays with them, and he's even given one of their daughters. He marries. They They have a son. And the story sort of ends there. Now, when we look at that story, and we'll get to verse 23 to 25, which is a sort of a theological interlude. This is the interpretation of these events, how we should think about them. But but when we think of just those two stories, I think sometimes we, and maybe you've heard this in in Sunday school or or growing up, we, we, we hear these stories of Moses killing this Egyptian, and it's a cautionary tale, right? This is what happens when God's people take God's will into their own hands, or, or this is what happens when pride takes over your life, or this is what happens, right? We, we sort of say these sorts of things, but that's not what really is going on here. That, there's actually much more going on here than meets the eye, and it's not meant to be read primarily as a cautionary tale. This is actually a foreshadowing. In the book of Exodus, we think of there's one Exodus, but that's not exactly true. There's actually three exoduses, three theological exoduses. And the first two are meant to foreshadow the ultimate exodus to come. And in the first two chapters, we have two exoduses. The first exodus is when Moses' mom puts Moses in the ark and casts him into the river. That's, he is exiled. He he leads his people. He, He is rescued. That's the first rescue. This is the second. The second is when, when Moses moves and is rescued and goes to Midian. What's really going on here is a sort of literary wink. The author is saying, it's going to be okay. I mean, later on, just think about this. Later on, this, the, more, the most dramatic exodus, well, in that, Moses is stirred to action when he sees the plight of his people. He sees them suffering, and what does he do? He then goes to rescue his people. But in the process of rescuing the people of God, the Egyptians Some of them die. He then flees Pharaoh to the east and stays 40 years in the wilderness. Okay, go back to our story. The same thing is true, right? He is stirred to action when he aligns himself with his people. He saves the righteous. An Egyptian dies. He flees Pharaoh to the east. And for 40 years, he's in Midian. This is true and historic, but it's also theological. He's saying... This is a type. This is a foreshadowing of the ultimate exodus to come. God's ruler is here. Well, the point also is made really clear if we don't know the point, and it's starting in verse 23 and to the end, which is God knows. God hears his people. God remembers his people. God will not forget their groaning verse 24, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. It's interesting that that it begins in verse 8 with, it says, and Pharaoh did not know. And it ends with, but God knows. Isn't that wonderful? The king might not know God's people. The king might oppress God's people, But the ultimate king knows, he remembers, he sees, he hears, and he will act. But the question is, how? I mean, how is this going to happen? How will God rescue his people? Well, it's through a rescuer, a rescuer like Moses. 
But really, when we think of the book of Exodus as a whole, we have God's people being rescued from Egypt. They are constituted as a people at Mount Sinai. They then get the tabernacle. And then at the very end, the glory of God fills the tabernacle. Because the point is that, that, that we are not just saved from or rescued from, we are also rescued to. They are rescued from Egypt and they're rescued to God. You see, God wants to dwell with his people. And so in order to dwell with his people, he first needs to get them out of Egypt. Then he needs to get Egypt out of their heart, which is the second half of it. And then he needs to create a system in which he can now dwell with his people, sinful people, and a holy God. And so we have Moses, who is that great rescuer, but there's a problem because Moses ultimately fails. Moses can't even get into the promised land because of his sin. And so it just brings us all back to, this is a foreshadowing, even here, of not the greatest exodus. The greatest exodus that's going to come here. We have a little exodus in our story. And there's going to be a greater exodus in the chapters following. But there is an even greater exodus that's going to come through a greater than Moses. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he's going to lead a people out from under the bondage and slavery of sin. And he's going to do so by bringing down the curses on himself. And if you want to know how can God and man dwell, well, the answer is through a great mediator, through a great ark, Jesus Christ. That's where we can find our peace. Moses is a type of Christ, a foreshadow of the greater rescuer to come, Jesus Christ, who aligns himself with humanity in the incarnation. And then what does he do? He aligns himself in the, uh, with us, and yet he is royally defined. Not, not just like Egyptian royal, but he is divinely royal. And let he, what? In the incarnation, he aligns with us. And then he dies for us. Such that we can have peace with him. With God himself. That's what these chapters are all about. That God is saving a people, rescuing a people from the bondage of their sin and plight. So that they can eventually be with God in his presence forever through the work of Jesus Christ. Which doesn't mean that we don't groan. It doesn't mean that we don't have pains, that we don't have laments, that we don't cry out to God. Those are all true, and we need to do those sorts of things. But what is even more truer than our pain is that God hears us in the midst of our pain, and he will never abandon us. And if you want proof, they say the proof is in the pudding. You want proof that God will never abandon you, you just need to look at the cross. That's the proof that God will never forsake us. Let's pray. God, we, um, we, we are a people who desperately need you, who de- desperately know that we can't rescue ourselves, but we need, we need to be rescued. And we are grateful that we can find that great rescuer in Jesus Christ. Lord, you are so good to us. And yet, Lord, I just pray, Lord, for, 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 any, for, for anyone who is suffering and, and, and groaning and crying out to you, Lord, I, I pray that you would come from them with the reality that you hear them. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would be a people that carry each other's burdens, 
and point each other time and time again to the hope of your return. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.